Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today is a special episode where we have four experts with us to answer some of your burning questions. This episode was recorded live on YouTube, so the video is available for you to watch as well. I'm Monica Brooks, who moderated the discussion. The experts will start with a brief introduction and then move in to what is new in their industry. Now, if you're curious about some of the questions that will be answered, here's a few. What can we do to manage lymphedema? How can long-term survivors take advantage with the new drugs that are now available? What are tumor markers and is it always beneficial for breast cancer patients? Why can't I get more scans after my treatment has ended? What's the difference between tamoxifen and an aromatose inhibitor? Is there anything that I can do to prepare for radiation? They're also gonna talk about their tips on managing fear of recurrence. As a reminder, please talk to your doctor with questions specific to you. This podcast is never intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice specific to your own diagnosis. And with that said, let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining. I'm Dr. Mark Kripe. I am a breast cancer and melanoma surgeon, and I'm going to be doing updates in breast surgery. Hi, I'm Dr. Shabana Dewani. I'm a medical oncologist. I will be talking about updates in medical oncology, and here we are to make a meaningful connection with you. Hi, Deepa Halaharvi, breast surgeon and a breast cancer survivor. I'm super excited to be here, and thanks for joining us. Hello, my name is Emily Finn. I'm a physical therapist. I am board certified in women's health physical therapy with uh, clinical specialties in pelvic health and cancer rehabilitation. And I'll be answering your questions about all things related to exercise, movement, and physical therapy for survivorship. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, we're going to have about a three to five minute talk. Uh, first thing, just uh, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So I want to remind everybody, make sure you're doing your own self checks. That's a self breast exam. We talk about just knowing your current state, so you're normal, and then you're trying to feel for any masses, anything that's abnormal, and please get that checked out if you notice something. Also, if you don't have any problems and you're over 40, make sure you get your screening mammogram annually. So just a little plug. I know we're talking about what's new and upcoming, but I always want to put that plug out there to make sure everybody's staying healthy. So I'm going to be talking about uh, surgical updates. A couple things that we uh, talked about, I think, on the podcast already. We've been talking about mastectomies recently. And again, a little clarification that we typically do lumpectomies, but within the world of mastectomy, we're now doing nipple sparing mastectomy on certain patients when it's appropriate. With that, we've had some great outcomes, but now we're doing sensation preservation. So typically when you do a nipple sparing mastectomy, you're not able to feel the skin so that nipple is insensate and we're now trying to make sure that you could have some sensation of the nipple in the skin. So that's one thing that we're doing. And I think we're having some reasonable results. Uh, there's, we still have a ways to go with that. Uh, the other update or kind of what's new is the Goldilocks mastectomy. We've had a lot of patients talking about that. Uh, certain people that perhaps would like to have a reconstruction, but maybe their, their body type is not right for it, or they have other medical problems or smokers or really bad diabetes, uh, our plastic surgeons don't want to have some wound complications that could delay other treatments. And so I think that's very reasonable. Sometimes when the patient wants reconstruction, the plastic surgeon doesn't want to do reconstruction. We kind of get stuck in the middle. And so the Goldilocks mastectomy has been a great thing, again, for certain patients. Now, those patients would typically be larger-breasted women with what we call ptosis or kind of droop where the, where the breasts maybe sag a little bit and they have some extra skin. 
we're able to take that skin and kind of roll it up to make a new breast mound. Again, for certain patients, uh, but that's been one of the updates. And it can also be a temporary kind of way to get them to reconstruction later after they go through if they would need chemotherapy or radiation or other ways. So uh, a couple of great things that we're doing. Dr. Duan. All right. So I will talk about uh, some updates in medical oncology space. So let me um, divide this into early stage breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. So talking about when we talk about early stage breast cancer, always the goal is what can we do more to prevent the recurrence? So just earlier this year, there was a drug that was approved called abamacyclib. We call it a CDK4 inhibitor. The, it was approved for patients who had more than four lymph nodes positive or one to three lymph nodes with a bigger tumor or a higher grade. The idea of this drug was, again, to decrease the risk of recurrence. We have more than four years results on this, and it showed that it's improved the cure rate by 6%. So in terms of this drug, we utilize it after somebody's had uh, surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, and we take this drug for two years. In piggybacking to that, there is another drug that just was presented a couple months ago at ASCO. It's called ribocyclib, very similar results. The difference was it actually included even patients who were lymph node negative, who were high risk. So we are just waiting for FDA approval for that one. So both this drug, the idea is to improve cure rates in patients who are high risk for recurrence. The next space we talk about is immunotherapy. Immunotherapy right now utilized for triple negative breast cancer, both for patients who are early stage where they have more than two centimeter disease or if they're lymph node positive, where we use it in combination for, with chemotherapy before surgery or in patients with metastatic disease, if they have something called as PDL1, it's a biomarker that's expressed on the tumor cells. If it's more than 10%, we combine it with chemotherapy for patients who are stage four. For early stage triple negative breast cancer, we really don't look at those biomarkers because we saw that it benefited irrespective if they had that expression on their cells or not. Coming down to the third group, which we call as antibody drug conjugates, this is making a lot of noise in oncology world. The first one we I want to talk about is trastuzumab derextucan. So if you look at HER2, which is a protein that's expressed in breast cancer, when it's positive, we call it as HER2 positive, when it has high expression. When it does has no expression, we call it as HER2 negative. And then there is something in middle, like a middle child. Finally, we didn't have a lot of good going on for the middle child for a long period of time. Finally, we have something good. And it, this drug called trastuzumab derextucan has shown really good results. And we are moving from metastatic disease to early stage for people who are high risk for recurrence. So this drug not only for um, utilized for breast cancer, it's been now been studied and utilized in a lot of other solid tumors. And the next one is called the sasituzumab, which is also an antibody drug conjugate. What this drug was initially approved for stage four triple negative breast cancer, but recently got approved for hormone positive HER2 negative breast cancer. This drug, after people have failed two or three different lines of treatment, it has shown good benefit where people are living longer in spite of failing two or three lines of systemic treatment. So these are some new updates in the world of medical oncology. And I will pass it on to Dr. Hala Harvey now. So thank you, Dr. Diwani. 
you know, uh, when a patient gets told they're diagnosed with cancer, of course, they go through surgery, you know, may or may not need chemotherapy. Sometimes they may need endocrine therapy or sometimes all of the above. So that changes you as a person uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually. So today I'm going to be talking about sexual wellness, the survivorship topic that I don't think we really spend too much time talking about. We are surgeons, we are busy operating, and I personally wish I had the time to help my patients with this problem. I've had a number of women come to me and tell me that, you know, everything is fine now, they get, got through the treatment, but uh, their sexual life is over, uh, their marriage is deteriorating. And so my hope with this three to five minute updates would be to reach out to your doctors and ask for a couple of different things that could help you depending on what problems you're having. Um, after being diagnosed with cancer, if you're hormone receptor positive, uh, you may need chemotherapy. In addition to that, you'll need anti-estrogen medication, tamoxifen if you're premenopausal, aromatase inhibitor if you're postmenopausal. Uh, sometimes you're put into medically induced menopause or surgically induced menopause where for, uh, physicians recommend removing ovaries. Well, when we, you know, you have menopause, but it's medically induced or surgically induced, that's very different from a, a natural menopause, which happens over a period of 10 years. And uh, when menopause is induced very sudden, that causes lots of changes to your body, uh, again, emotionally, physically. And the common complaints that I get is vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, pain at the entrance of the vagina or the introitus, uh, pelvic floor tightening, uh, libido issues, low libido. So my hope today is to give you names of some products or talk to your doctors to ask for some products that could help you. So to start with uh, vaginal dryness, pain with intercourse, uh, you could ask your physician or your provider about lubricants and moisturizers. So the way that I remember these moisturizers are for ma maintenance and lubricants you use right before sexual intercourse or what, we, what I call love making uh, lubricants. So you do it right before, you use it right before. Moisturizers is something that you want to use three to five times a week. So some of the different names, uh, the most common product that I came up and I was preparing for this talk today came across as Good Clean Love, which is a uh, you, you, it's, it has hyaluronic acid in it, uh, which is the same thing that you use on your face and you want to use it three to five times a week. Uh, Hyalinogen, suppository applicator, Reverie is another one. A lubricant, of course, lovemaking, so use it right before you have intercourse. So Astroglide, again, good, clean, love, uh, water-based lubricants uh, is what you want to ask for. The really good one that I've had people tell me that works really well is silicone-based called Uber Lube. And if you go to their website, they do provide, I believe, lots of free samples. That's more slippery, long-lasting. You want to be careful not to use with any products that has silicone in it. Um, if you experience irritation with these products, you can uh, look for glycerin and paraben-free um, free products. Now, pain at the introitus is something personally I experienced when I was taking tamoxifen, and it is something I did not know, but you could apply uh, topical lidocaine, and it is, you just apply it for three to four minutes, and you wipe it off so your partner doesn't experience the effects of the lidocaine. Um, and then, of course, you can talk to your physician about local estrogen uh, therapy, so like ointment or suppositories. That should be a shared decision-making between you and your physician. And you can also talk to them about DHEA. It's a topical product that you could use vaginally. Now, what are some things you could do for decreased libido and arousal issues? Well, there's a spontaneous desire. There is a reactive or responsive desire, which requires a little bit of work for us women. You know, uh, 
hand-holding, you know, physical affection, things like that, making time for, you know, having sex. It's, you know, when you're dating, you spend so much time planning dates, going out and putting it on a calendar. It also, again, becomes very important. It's also, I think men are, don't want to, you know, hurt their spouses. Women often tell me my husband, you know, does not like me anymore or love me anymore. That's usually never the case. It just requires a lot of communication between the partners. Uh, there's an app called Meet Rosie. And again, in preparing for this updates, I came across it. It's an app. It's by a physician, a sex therapist, and a counselor. It's geared towards women, which has like erotic stories, medical information. Uh, you could download it. It helps with arousal, lubrication. Uh, you could also find a certified sex therapist on ASECT, A-S-E-C-T website. The two drugs that are approved for hypoactive sexual desires are called ADDI, or it is approved for premenopausal women. The way it works is it decreases serotonin, increases levels of dopamine and not epinephrine. And the second drug is by Lacey. Uh, it's an injection that premenopausal women, they can give it to themselves prior to um, their sexual encounter. And the last thing, and I'm going to segue to Emily, it will be pelvic floor dysfunction. And she's a therapist and she can talk more about it, I'm sure. So. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Helen Harvey. Um, yes, so I'm going to talk about physical therapy and how it can help in a lot of different realms when it comes to breast cancer, but I'll start with pelvic health because that's a, an area of specialty that I am very, very passionate about, and I have found that not a lot of people know very much about it and know all that we can do. So the pelvic floor are all the structures at the bottom of the pelvis, including muscles, tendons, ligaments, and nerves, and they support the pelvis and the abdomen as well. And those muscles in particular have a number of very important functions. They are involved in bladder and bowel control as well as sexual health and function too. And one of the most important things for a healthy pelvic floor is estrogen. So when you're talking about a population where estrogen has to be removed for some reason, like in breast cancer, of course, um, medically that is necessary, it can have some cascading effects on overall pelvic health and function. So for example, estrogen is vital for maintaining control of urine. It helps support the urethra. And so when estrogen is removed, people might notice that they're having problems with urinary control. Um, estrogen is also really important for colorectal and anal health in particular too. So there can be issues with bowel control when estrogen is removed. And then as Dr. Hella Harvey mentioned as well, the vulvar and vaginal tissues really need estrogen to promote a nice, healthy, supportive environment. Um, the way I describe it to patients is the vagina is like a mucous membrane. It is a mucous membrane and it needs moisture constantly. And then for like sexual intercourse, for example, lubricant can be very helpful as well. When that moisture is removed because estrogen levels are lowered or completely taken away, it's like a paper cut. That's how I describe it. That tissue gets very irritated. And whenever there's movement, it's like a little paper cut. And what can happen because the vulvar and vaginal tissues are so intimately related to the pelvic floor muscles is that when there's pain because of a mucous membrane change, the muscles can react negatively. And so that's like the pelvic floor muscle tightness and spasm can happen as well, which can perpetuate the problem. It can make pain with intercourse persisting. It can also make it difficult to empty the bladder and the bowels too if the muscles don't know how to relax. 
all of the things I just talked about from a muscular perspective on pelvic health physical therapists are specially trained to treat. And then we are also educated um, on vulvar and vaginal health too, and can make recommendations for promoting the most optimal environment possible after um, a breast cancer diagnosis and an associated change in estrogen levels. Additionally, physical therapists, um, exercise is our bread and butter. Movement is our bread and butter. Um, so we can help anybody develop an exercise program, but especially after a breast cancer surgery and treatment, there are a lot of side effects that can happen from the standpoint of posture, range of motion, strength, and flexibility that physical therapists can develop programs to specifically address. Um, we use manual therapy techniques to help promote, like I mentioned, flexibility, soft tissue mobility, say after radiation treatment. And we are also specialized, um, or there are physical therapists that are specialized in treating lymphedema as well, um, which is swelling associated with removal of a lymph node or a surgery um, to address breast cancer. One of our first questions is about lymphedema, but mm -hmm. maybe also surgery. So I'm not sure who wants to answer this, but sure. it says cancer treatment has caused lymphedema. Have you heard of and or can you recommend lymphatic bypass or lymph node transplants? Who would like to take that one? I can start. So that is something that we're looking at from a surgical standpoint. And often it'll be the kind of microvascular surgeons, which are the plastic surgeons that are doing this. We've seen some data with the lymph node transfer. I haven't looked at it for a few years because it depends where you're getting that other lymph node from. You don't want to cause additional problems. Uh, sometimes they're taking that from the, the groin area, which has an even higher rate of lymphedema, which I don't like, or an intra-abdominal lymph node, which then you're doing surgery in the abdomen, which has its own risk. So I've seen some beneficial data. Um, I'm waiting to uh, see that to be more mature. Uh, also, they're doing the lymph venous bypass where they'll take some of those dilated lymphatic channels. So you think of it like a pipe as it gets larger, then you can see it and then you can uh, dump that directly into a vein. So you can almost like, bypass those other blocked lymphatic channels. So I've seen some better uh, results with that in certain patients. So it can't be kind of a generalized where everything is swollen, but where you get those lymphatic channels that are dilated. And often we say that's going to be an early lymphedema. Uh, so again, seen some uh, beneficial results. Dr. Halla Harvey, anything else? No, I, I agree with all of that. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, what could we add as far as uh, from a physical therapy standpoint? Let's mm -hmm. say surgery may not be an option. Mm -hmm. What can we do uh, for ourselves when it comes to lymphedema? Fantastic question. So exercise is very beneficial for um, management of lymphedema because what it does by exercising, our muscles are contracting and those lymphatic channels are running through our muscles. We call it the muscle pump. So by exercising and moving your muscles, it's actually helping to clear that extra fluid and bring it back into the central system to reduce swelling. Physical therapists can also show um, show patients how to do what's called manual lymphatic drainage, which is a technique that um, PTs can do and then patients can do to themselves in some instances as well to help manually physically move that fluid through out of the limb. Compression garments can be really helpful as well. And then there are just general principles um, of limb care and skin care as well that we educate in to minimize risk of um, or worsening of lymphedema. Wonderful. Now it add weight management as well. Yes. So trying to keep weight down. So yes. then there's less pressure to push against as you're trying to get that lymph fluid back. So if you can mm -hmm. keep the weight down, that's also helpful mm -hmm. with moving. Yeah. Dr. Dewani, with the recent research that you had mentioned, how does this impact 
survivors, maybe that are five or 10 years out, is this something they'd want to talk to their oncologist about, about this new drug, the new drugs? Yes, so absolutely. Uh, in terms of, you know, the more and more research, both in early stage and metastatic is, for metastatic people, it is more for how can we come up with more effective options? What are my different options? And with less toxicity, that's always the goal. And to you know, get as much mileage as possible with those options. And there are a lot of um, genetic testing, what we call as next-gen sequencing, that's being done. It could be done on the tumor tissue. It could be done through the blood. And that gives the information to your doctor to see what would be more specific for you. Coming to the early stage breast cancer in terms of what all can be done for risk of recurrence. So people who have lymph node positive disease or a high grade disease, bigger tumor size, what additional things can be done to help decrease the risk. So absolutely, you want to ask your doctor if you are a candidate for those additional things after your chemotherapy, after your surgery, radiation, what else can I do to decrease my risk of recurrence? Absolutely a great, great question. Every patient should ask their oncologist. Wonderful. We have a question. Um, can you talk more about the SOZO measurements and perhaps talk about the SOZO machine um, and the difference between base and post-surgery? Their PT recommended a compression sleeve because the difference was six and a half or higher. In terms of, and I have never seen, I'll be completely honest here, the Sozo machine itself, but getting an idea of where limb volume is at prior to a surgery and then after surgery as well, and kind of tracking along the path of treatment can give an idea of risk for developing lymphedema. And then that gives us more time to get out ahead of it. So that might be, uh, or that could be why a compression garment is recommended for somebody, just to help give a little bit extra pressure to prevent um, the lymphedema from potentially worsening. Um, so it keeps it more manageable from the very beginning, which can be very, very beneficial for outcomes. And it's a measurement. Mm -hmm. So in the old days, mm -hmm. we would use a volumetric displacement. So you're supposed to put your limb in a column of water and see how much water is displaced. And you're looking, if that limb gets larger, it displaces more water. Now, they've done some studies, and it actually takes longer to then drain that and fill it back up by the time the next patient comes in. Realistically, you can't do that on everyone. So then you'd use a, a measurement, and you actually just measure the size. And then they came up with LDEX, so it's looking for water impedance. It's kind of like an electrode that you put on your hand, but then you had all these electrodes. So now they've moved to the Sozo, which you just kind of touch it, and it's looking at water impedance, and it can also do the legs and the arms, and it's comparing right and left side, but it's also comparing before you go to surgery to after surgery. And so we currently, where we work, have an ongoing study looking at it before surgery, after surgery, three months, six months, and again, we're looking for that subclinical lymphedema, meaning nobody knows it's there. Your rings aren't tight yet. Your watch is not tight yet, but we can tell that it's having some changes. Putting that sleeve on and trying to stop that lymphedema from becoming symptomatic, and we're seeing some great results with that. And so that's how we're utilizing the Sozo measurement. But it is a company. It's a device, uh, and you could also just be measuring your arm at multiple levels as well. Dr. Kreit, can we go back to talking about the Goldilocks mastectomy, the nipple sparing? We know it's available here in Columbus. How would someone who's watching this, you know, on the other side of the world, find out or find a good person, a surgeon, to perform this surgery? And uh, that can be a challenge where you're at different locations within the U.S., across the world, 
you know, who is actually performing the surgery. And I always recommend you find a breast surgeon. So someone that is breast fellowship trained, uh, typically we're going to be hopefully staying more cutting edge uh, and trying to do what's uh, kind of latest and greatest and have all the different options in our toolbox. Uh, just like the aesthetic flat closure, uh, some people do that, some people don't. I always say, how do you know? You ask your surgeon. And then if that surgeon doesn't do some of those techniques, you can always try to find uh, other surgeons that do. So it, uh, unfortunately, it means you have to get online and, and probably do a lot of research yourself. Uh, you can go through the American Society of Breast Surgeons, I think, Society of Surgical Oncology, have a website of who's trained, at least fellowship trained in oncology surgery. And oftentimes you're just going to have to ask the surgeon when you go in. Uh, there are some different websites that try to have uh, the names of different physicians. I don't know that those are always complete. And then even beyond asking your surgeon, do you do this? How many have you done? So if it's someone that they say, oh yeah, I, I do it and they've done two, that may not be the person that you'd want to see to do your surgery. Dr. Hall Harvey, you talked a bit about estrogen as well as Emily. And sometimes estrogen can be a scary word if your cancer was estrogen positive. Um, can you talk about some of the, the lubricants that have estrogen? Is that something we should be scared of? Like when we see that word and also hyaluronic acid, that sounds super scary too. So maybe just reassuring us what it is and, and that it's safe for us. Yeah, hyaluronic acid is uh, it's it's water based, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it is something that you can put you be put on our faces as well for lubrication. It's very similar to that. It's really does not have any parabens or anything like that. That is, um, you know, dangerous to you. Right. And in terms of the lubricants. We do, you know, recommend starting with non-hormonal lubricants and moisturizers at first. There are a number of things out there that can help. And um, in terms of using vaginal estrogen, that should be a conversation between you and your, your physician. It really all depends on, you know, what type of breast cancer you had and, you know, how, you know, are you considered high risk at the time of uh, your breast risk for recurrence of cancer coming back. So you want to have shared decision making with your physician and um, the systemic absorption, meaning the estrogen being absorbed into your bloodstream is not very minimal, it's not very high, but if you're already at a higher risk of cancer coming right. back, uh, that may be a concern that you should talk with your, with your physician. Having said that, quality of life is like such an important thing, you know, as a breast cancer survivor, you, you know, you've been told you have cancer, you're going through all these things that are not in your control. There is a number of things that are in your control uh, when it comes to sexual wellness. And I think the most important thing that I think is communication, communication, communication between you and your partner, lots of patience, lots of love, and you just have to work with each other and also talk to your doctors. And, you know, I'm guilty of it where I have not asked patients if they're having issues with their, you know, sexual intimacy at times because we get so bogged down talking about surgery, the complications, the risks, and other things. Sometimes we don't talk about it, but put us, you know, uh, Put us on the spot and ask us questions. Mm -hmm. If we can help you, we can refer you to survivorship where there's people that can help you. Uh, but I think important is to talking about it. It's really important, you know, part of your quality of life. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. And it's actually there's a lot of research about that too, in terms of the number of people who want to talk about it. So you're yes. not alone. If that's something that you have questions about, have concerns about bring it up with your provider. They are ready to talk about it and they want to hear about it from you too. So don't wait for don't a wait. The Correct. Yes. to bring it up. Yeah. If it's an issue, go ahead and bring it up and, yes. and they'll be ready to talk about it. Mm -hmm. This is a really great question. How 
is the scan frequency and type of MAMO ultrasound or MRI determined post-treatment? I've heard of some having three months, six months, or annual. So who decides how often and when? Does that, and, and sometimes I think you even have to show symptoms before you can get a scan. Mm -hmm. And it is varied across the board. So how is that decision made? Okay, yeah, I'll take that question. So I think that's one of the questions I pretty much get asked every day in my clinic. Okay, I'm done with my treatment. How are you going to monitor me? How will I know that my cancer is back or not? And you can always sense that sense of insecurity and fear once you're all done with your treatment. That's always the biggest question with any breast cancer survivor. So um, if you look at something called as American Society uh, uh, of Clinical Oncology and National Cancer Guidelines, they actually do not recommend doing frequent or aggressive uh, blood work or scans for this patient. And that's based off data. So there were trials that were done back in 1990s that looked at it. And again, in 2005, there was an update where they looked at a couple of trials, two randomized trials, where they saw that by doing frequent scans of patients who didn't have symptoms, there was, did not impact how long they lived. And the rate of detection was like really, really low in terms of metastasis. I'll give you an example. Um, there was a trial that took 2,400 patients over course of nine years. They had 6,600 CT scan and the rate of detection was 0.5%. Of those patients, 200 required additional imaging because of sometimes false positive findings. Mm -hmm. Of those 200 patients, 50 went on to have some form of invasive procedure surgery to further look at what that finding was. And of that, of that 50 patients, 85% patients actually had negative or benign biopsy. And that's why it's not recommended for those patients to have frequent scan. I know it's scary. Um, it's like, how will I know? And a lot of it is symptom driven. And what studies have shown that when you trigger scans, when somebody's having symptoms, that's where it's more effective. Even when we do scans in patients who are not symptomatic, even if we pick them early, it showed that it didn't make a difference in their survival. I would say there is a little bit of gray zone. So if somebody has only one area, what we call as isolated metastasis, based on their tumor biology, how long were, was their disease control, and with the multimodality approach and with some of the newer treatments, we can provide them long-term control, but has that made an impact on their survival, how long they live, is still questionable. And that's metastatic. I would even add, though, to maybe that question about mammogram, ultrasound, MRI of the breast. So I think a little bit of a different question. And I would also say it's changed. When I started early 2000s, we would get a mammogram every six months for two years. So that's what we used to do. A number of studies showed that there was no benefit, no earlier detection. So now we just do an annual mammogram. So if you've done a lumpectomy, you'll continue with an annual mammogram. If you've removed the breast and done a mastectomy, then you're not going to need any mammography. Slightly different question. What about those patients that maybe have DCIS or they're high risk from family history and other things? Those high risk patients might get breast MRIs because they're high risk. And so they're looking for breast cancer. So you might add an MRI for certain patients that have had breast cancer, but also are high risk for or an additional breast cancer, and then throwing in now dense breast. 
So if someone still has breast tissue and their mammogram has heterogeneous or extremely dense breast tissue, now we're recommending in the state of Ohio that insurance companies have to pay for additional imaging beyond mammography. So we talk about a screening breast ultrasound or potentially an abbreviated MRI. So it's a different type of breast MRI than the full breast MRI, but those can be additional screening modalities for high risk women or women with dense breast tissue. So it kind of gets a little muddy between full body evaluation versus just the breast versus family history. And, and that's where it's like really for each patient, you have to look through what's most appropriate for them and what treatment have they, have they had done. What about blood work that's done every so often? And are, are is it cancer markers or tumor markers? Something that's Is that something monitored regularly for each patient? Or again, does that just depend on what the patient needs or asks? Tell us more about that. It, it, it sounds like I almost paid somebody to ask me those questions. <laughs> 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 so tumor markers, so breast, there are two tumor markers, 15 and uh, 3 and CA. 27, 29. So these are actually a protein that are produced by breast cancer cells that you can detect by blood test and see if they're high or low. So these tumor markers are actually not sensitive and not specific. What does that mean? So people can have cancer and have completely negative tumor markers. So it doesn't truly pick up recurrence. And if sometimes we can have what we call as false positive, that you don't have cancer, but the test is positive, we would trigger scans and we would not find anything. So it leads to unnecessary anxiety and scanning. So that's one of the reasons why it's actually not recommended for early stage breast cancer to follow them with tumor markers. And that's part of our guidelines too. We do use tumor markers for stage four or metastatic disease because you know we get scans in those patients to monitor how they're responding to the treatment every few months. But tumor markers and blood tests, when they're getting their blood test, we can added to their blood counts and stuff and see on a monthly basis if it's if, to begin with if it's high to monitor how it's doing in adjunct to their scans. I think that's so confusing because they'll say oh my friend had ovarian cancer and they're getting scans and they're getting blood work why am I not? Colon cancer they're getting scans they're getting CEA why am I not? So it's different for every cancer type and then, like you said, even the stage, so for metastatic breast is different than early stage breast. So very, very confusing, but good to talk to your physician about that. But yeah, very, very confusing. That is true. And it's same for the scans too. Like for breast cancer patients, we don't scan them every three to six months, yeah. but we do that for pancreatic and colon cancer. So when they're talking to their friends or family, they're like, how come I'm not getting any yeah. scans? So a lot of it, this is based off studies and data and it's like is this effective in picking up uh, recurrence for cancer for those subset of patients if you have four positive lymph nodes is that considered metastatic breast cancer and i think this is a great question because i think i read even in my chart um literally my chart that um it, it uses the word metastasize when it goes to your lymph nodes is that truly considered metastatic breast cancer so that's actually not considered as metastatic disease. That's more local regional disease. Mm -hmm. But it's because if it's in the lymph nodes that are on the same side of their breast cancer underneath their arm, it's still considered as a localized disease. So whenever cancer travels from the breast to that nearby lymph node, that traveling is called metastasizing and not truly mean advanced or a stage four disease. If it is beyond that local area, like if it's in the bone or liver, 
then we would call it as more metastasis. Great. Let's talk a little bit about radiation and working through radiation um, from a physical therapy part. Mm -hmm. So if someone is, um, they want to prepare their body for radiation, whether that's before the actual treatment and even after. Emily, are there some tips you can give a patient on what they could do to kind of take control of their body and, and the way they're moving their body for radiation? Yes, absolutely. So physical therapy can be very helpful in preparation for radiation treatment. So I have treated patients who have maybe already had their surgery, they've had a mastectomy or a lumpectomy, and they need to gain range of motion in order to be able to have the radiation delivered to where it needs to go. Um, And then I've also worked with patients after radiation as well. They experience pain and range of motion and flexibility limitations because of the associated, uh, what's called fibrosis. That's a common term that's out there, radiation fibrosis, which is a stiffening of the skin and the tissue underneath the skin that can make movement difficult. So from the perspective of what physical therapists can help with primarily is manual therapy. So not just actually moving the limb, but mobilizing the tissue safely in a way that can promote um, flexibility, even though the the changes in the tissue are permanent, we can still make positive changes in how it's moving overall. And the way that that treatment is delivered varies based on where someone is in their treatment journey and how soon radiation has happened. Other things that I make sure to really talk about with patients and things that they can focus on on their own is posture is huge. We tend to, and this, this is everybody, We all tend to lean forward, right? Kind of slump forward, working at at the computer or on our phones. And that has a lot of implications for what happens at our neck and at our shoulders as well. And that combined with changes to the tissue from radiation can make upright posture really difficult. So making sure you're focusing on that consistently can be helpful, as well as stretching, um, particularly for the chest, um, the muscles in the front of the chest. Obviously, you would want to make sure that you're doing it in a safe range of motion, especially if you've had surgery and the type of surgery that you've had. You want to make sure um, to go with the guidance of a physical therapist to make sure you're doing what's best for your muscles and the joints as well. And then general exercise, so general exercise, of course, but also exercises that help strengthen the muscles of the back and around the shoulder blades or the scapula. So those muscles are really, really important for making sure that the shoulders are moving correctly, but then also to help hold us in that nice upright posture and good positioning to allow our spine and shoulders and back to move the way that it should. I think we all just sat up straight. I know. Absolutely. Dr. Hall Harvey, you had mentioned quite a few products in your introduction. Can you talk more about what is the O shot and how can that benefit a breast cancer survivor? Yes. So, um, O-Shot is this um, PRP, plasma-rich protein, that I believe sometimes women have that injected into their face uh, to produce collagen and different things like that. So it's injected into the vaginal, uh, to the lining. And there's really no data to show that it benefits. We don't have any randomized control studies on that. But it's something I feel like women ask about. And actually, not anything about it until the, I was getting ready for this. Uh, and I learned so much whenever we do these type of events. But yeah, that's something it's out there, but there's no data to show that it works. Even on the face? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what about laser? Yeah. 
So there's Mona Lisa, that's the most common laser that people talk about. So that's the CO2 fractionation uh, also into the vaginal mucosa. Um, also really no data to show that it actually helps uh, with vaginal atrophy or you know pain with intercourse or dryness. And just to speak a little bit about that too, because I have seen patients who have had both of those things and the results are kind of what Dr. Hal Harvey mentioned about the data. It's mixed, mixed results. So I have had patients who have found, um, especially the Mona Lisa to be very helpful and then others who didn't notice as much of a benefit from it. And one of the things that I make sure to emphasize with people, of course, if that's something that you're interested in and want to pursue please, by all means, do so. But remember that there are other things that are important as well. Lubrication, moisture, good, um, healthy pelvic floor function. And then also what Dr. Hella Harvey mentioned too, intimacy and making sure that that is in communication, making sure that that is something that you're focusing on as well. Um, our biggest sex organ is right up here. It's our brain, right? So everything that goes into intimacy and sexual activity from the communication perspective, feeling comfortable with your partner, um, that is just as important as what is actually happening physically. Emily, you mentioned the importance of having a healthy pelvic floor. How does someone determine whether they do or they don't? See a pelvic floor physical <laughs> <laughs> So, so some common signs and symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction are pain in the pelvic region, and that can be with or without activity. Sometimes pelvic pain is driven by um, an issue going on in an organ, like endometriosis, for example. Um, but other times it can come from more of a muscular source. So maybe there's issues with how the muscles are functioning. And as I mentioned earlier, they can get tight or spasm, and that's causing the pain itself. Um, so pelvic pain urinary or fecal incontinence, which means difficulty with controlling your bladder or bowel. So there's actual leakage of urine or of stool when you don't intend um, to actually go to the bathroom. And then conversely, constipation as well as difficulty with bladder emptying can um, also indicate that there are issues with pelvic floor function as well as urinary urgency and frequency. So if you're experiencing any of those symptoms, um, whether or not you've been diagnosed with or treated for breast cancer or not, those are definitely things to bring up to your physician um, because pelvic floor physical therapy can absolutely help with all of those things. Dr. Duwani, can you speak to the difference between tamoxifen and an AI? Why are some on one versus another? And then also speak to how long is this maintenance medication? Is it seven years, 10 years? And how does an oncologist decide? Okay, it's a good question. Um, so when we talk about anti-estrogen treatment, when we are deciding about treatment, we try to look at whether somebody's premenopausal versus postmenopausal. When females are premenopausal, we use something called a stemoxifen. Again, it also depends what is their risk of recurrence. If somebody is premenopausal and if they have a higher risk of recurrence, for example, if they had a high oncotype score or in short, if they received chemotherapy for their cancer, for hormone positive breast cancer, then we try to utilize something a little bit more than just stemoxifen, what we call as ovarian suppression which is using a shot to shut down the estrogen production from the ovaries, which can be achieved medically or surgically removing the ovaries. And we combine it with another pill, what we call as aromatase inhibitor or an AI, 
which basically blocks peripheral production of estrogen. Very common question, okay, I don't have my ovaries, I'm postmenopausal, what are we blocking in my body? So we still produce some amount of estrogen by a gland called adrenal gland that sits on top of the kidney. There is some estrogen that's stored in the fat, some small amount made in the liver, and that's what this pill blocks is the peripheral production of estrogen. So that's what we use for premenopausal. For postmenopausal female, we use the AI aromatase inhibitor because their ovaries are not functional. So we try to block every bit of peripheral uh, estrogen that's present in their body. To answer your question regarding the duration, so it's a very uh, good question. So how we are deciding that if somebody is premenopausal, um, if they're high risk, especially if they got chemotherapy, they got ovarian suppression, they are on AI, we are talking more extended treatment for those patients for 10 years. For people who are low risk, but if they tolerated the treatment really well, we still talk about extended treatment. There were two different trials that looked at tamoxifen or antiestrogen treatment for premenopausal female with the extended treatment. Now, there are also some genomic studies out there that are looking at certain things in terms of, okay, what is your risk of recurrence between year 5 to 10? And by taking that extended antiestrogen treatment, is that going to make a difference in decreasing that risk? So there are some... Uh, genomic test out there that might help your physician to make a decision. Again, those all these tests are not perfect, but at least a sub tool that might help you. It should not be your sole decision-making factor because a lot of things come into play when you're making this decision. So it's something that you can utilize, but should not be a sole factor in making the decision. So and for postmenopausal female, again, if they have smaller tumors, lymph node negative, low risk of recurrence, we talk at least five years. In some female, we do talk extended. There was actually a study that looked worse seven versus 10 years, and the data looked pretty much very similar, but it's still an ongoing question. So especially if somebody's having a lot of trouble, the risk of recurrence is low, then we kind of stop at five. But if somebody's tolerating it well, then we may talk about extended treatment in those patients. So duration of treatment really depends the risk of cancer, whether they are pre or post menopausal, how they're tolerating treatment. I think that all comes in picture uh, when we decide. So it's like an individualized decision by talking to their mm -hmm. physician or their oncologist. And Dr. Gawani, as an oncologist, you see patients long-term, long after their surgery and chemo, how do you manage as an oncologist working the emotional aspect of a patient when it comes to fear, fear of recurrence? And I'm sure um, Dr. Kripe and Dr. Hal Harvey, you see that as well when people come to you. How do you help them manage that in their lives ongoing after treatment has ended? So uh, from my standpoint, when we follow these patients, I mean, I know there is fear on the other side of the table. We always try to reassure uh, it is interesting, like if we look at stage one and two breast cancer, 80% our population is stage one and two. So when you talk about even six to seven percent recurrences, late recurrences in this patient, if you're talking six to seven percent of that 80% population, that's lots of patients. And on the on this side of the table, we try to reassure them. In our heart, we also are concerned, <coughs> worried, but we do our best in terms of counseling about their symptoms, their risk, 
and you know do everything and we have a really low threshold i would i, I would speak personally for myself uh, in terms of if they have symptoms to trigger some form of imaging to make sure that there is no recurrence um, and one advice i give my patients that breast cancer was part of your life don't make it your life mm -hmm. and i would just say it's also normal so people come in and say i'm you know have anxiety i'm coming in to see you today and i get anxious and i say unfortunately it's almost like that ptsd that every year mm -hmm. they come in for their mammogram they see their physician i would say it's normal so i, I to just verbalize that so the patients understand okay it's not just me i'm not the only right. one now if it gets to the point where they're not sleeping at night mm -hmm. It's changing their daily routine, their function. They can't stop thinking about it. Okay, now you should go see a counselor. So we have some counselors that you could see and just talk through it. We don't want that to control your life. So like kind of like what you were saying, it, it was part of your life. We don't want that to be your life. But also understanding every time you come in for your mammogram and, and see your physician again, it's probably going to stir up some of that emotion. And that's just a normal thing. As long as it's not pathologic and it's a couple days and goes away, mm -hmm. then I would say that's okay. Yeah, I think that was my next question. At what point would you want your patient to call you if they've had a headache or a backache or something along those lines? When is it like, okay, let's get you in here? So at what point do we say, let's make that phone call? I think in terms of, we, you know, we all have aches and pains. Like, how do I know that this is not my recurrence of breast cancer? Or this is just a routine. So if you have pain that is persistent, getting worse, not going away, your doctor, you need to talk to your doctor about like symptoms. It's always better to be safe than sorry. Mm -hmm. So if you have symptoms, like for example, back pain, it's been there for a couple of weeks, you try time not, takes the edge off, but still there, you still need to report it to your doctor and say, hey, I have been having this back pain for a few weeks, hasn't got any better. I think it needs to be back. It's very normal to think about fear of recurrence once you've been diagnosed with cancer. Again, like both of them are saying, if the symptoms last a long time, you definitely want your physicians to know, you know, we all will have headaches and back pains and different things. It's just part of life, right? And so I tell people do not give cancer so much power to where you're thinking about this every single day and it's taking away the everyday joy from you. If that happens, then you definitely need to see a therapist and you need to talk to your doctors. But just know that you will have aches and pains, but when it does persist and doesn't go away, you want to bring it to your attention to your doctor. Physical therapists are typically seeing their patients weekly. So we're hearing about these concerns fairly regularly. And one of the things that I always try to emphasize is that the feelings about your cancer might not go away, but you can do a lot about what has happened. You have a lot of tools to help make it better. And take back that control. And exercise is so powerful for preventing risk of recurrence or for lowering risk of recurrence and also um, risk of mortality as well, which is great. So from the standpoint of exercise recommendations, anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer, really not that significantly different than people who have not been diagnosed with cancer. So about 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity or about 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity exercise, it's what's recommended. That breaks down to about a half an hour, five days a week. And exercise in all forms is safe for people who have had breast cancer. It's just all about how you approach it. it might have to be a little bit different. And if you've had surgery, chemo, radiation, or all of the above, you just might have to make some modifications about how you're doing certain things because of what your body has been through. So cardiovascular training is wonderful. Running, rowing, swimming, those are great examples of cardiovascular 
more focused cardiovascular exercise, but resistance training and weight training is also very helpful to do. And it's also safe to do. And previously it was thought that lifting a lot of weight was dangerous. And of course, everybody needs to be mindful of how much they're lifting if they're resistance training. But there are recent studies out there that have shown that people who have had breast cancer can lift up to 75% of their one repetition max safely. So that's a pretty decent amount of weight, um, which, which is great. It's great to know that there, while there are considerations, there really aren't limits, so to speak. So the possibilities are endless. And when I talk about exercise with people, find what you like to do. Do something that you enjoy, because if you don't like it, you're not really going to be that motivated to stick with it or to participate in a program regularly. So that could be Pilates, that could be Orange Theory, that could be CrossFit, that could be yoga, that could be triathlon training, that could be any or all of the above, but find something that makes you happy as you're doing it. Also find someone to do it with you. Having having a buddy with you um, as you exercise is very, very helpful for, again, that accountability and sticking with the program. I'll say two points to that. Uh, one is Dr. Diwani was talking about the aromatase inhibitors, which can also cause thinning of the bones. And mm -hmm. so what Emily is mentioning about strength training, that's really beneficial for that. For us yes. women, as we get older, we want to preserve that quality of that bone strength. The second thing, I don't know about you all, I never feel like I want to go exercise. But once I go do it, I feel amazing and it feels great. And I think it's really important. You don't want to wait to get inspired to go work out. You just need to get up and do it, just mm -hmm. like you brush your teeth. And, other and find that community. Yeah, whether it's a right. walk and run club that yeah. Emily's doing, oh, yes. whether it's mm -hmm. running yeah. clubs that are in your local area. Yeah. So if you have that buddy, you have that person, you have, there's a, a group of people, mm -hmm. it can actually, I'm going to be crazy, it can make running fun. Yeah. It can make exercise <laughs> fun, and you're doing it with a group of people. So find that community. Silver Sneakers is another great thing oh, yes. for people as they get older. So what if someone is struggling to get started, Emily, and to move their bodies? Just what is something, and we talked about this on the podcast, but I think it's so important mm -hmm. Um, as far as taking those small steps. Absolutely. So two things I would recommend. We talked about bringing, bringing things up with your physician. So letting your physician know that you, you want to exercise, but you don't know where to start. Getting a referral to a physical therapist and just having someone, we have that trained eye to see how you're moving. And again, knowing your history and your treatment and how that has impacted your musculoskeletal system, we can make recommendations for how to modify things or scale things so you're doing it safely, right? Because that can also be a huge barrier to exercise. I want to do something, but I don't know if it's safe for me to do or if there are going to be negative consequences. But also in your daily life, purposefully moving more within the context of what you're already doing can be super helpful. So I... Um, one of the things that I do when I go grocery shopping is I purposefully walk quickly um, as I'm going through the store. Not only do I just want to get it over with, but also mm -hmm. walking a little bit faster than a casual pace. It's going to get my heart rate up a little bit, and that's going to give a cardiovascular benefit. Parking a little bit further away in the parking lot when you're at a store to walk in that's going to give you an additional benefit. Um, purposefully, when you're doing laundry, for example, and your laundry is in your basement, don't fill the basket up all the way. Take multiple trips up and down the stairs as you're putting your laundry away. Things that you are already doing in your daily life, but now we're just adding a little bit more movement to them can be a really, really effective place to start. And also, I love how you've mentioned before, to set the intention. 
Yes. Plan ahead. Mm -hmm. Don't don't just do it as you go because you might forget and right. then you miss an opportunity. Yes. To to do those, but those little steps definitely add up, and it wants yep. it. That doing the action actually motivates you. Right. Motivation doesn't just happen. You have to like take right. that step. Yep. Forward. So that is um, a wrap for us today. It is two o'clock. Any final words for our listeners? I want to first say thanks to this amazing team of people. I feel so privileged to work with all of them. And um, Dr. Kreib, Dr. Diwani, Emily, they have been on uh, the Breast Cancer Podcast and very grateful. I think this is going to be very useful for, for viewers. And thank you to everyone who joined us today. Thanks, guys. Appreciate thank you. It. Have a great day. Bye.